Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more Then with FanDuel, you get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, Permitted parishes only. Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope all of you had a great weekend. After going six days in a row, we had a couple of days off, but my wife, who had been out of town during the whole time, 
was in Vegas for a work trip and all she wanted to do was relax. So guess what I did on my two days off? I watched basketball. I told myself I was going to unplug for a little bit and disconnect. And instead I watched all the games. So <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. But in, on the bright side, I'm kind of in the loop, which is a good feeling coming off of a weekend. But uh, we have a lot of basketball to talk about tonight. We're going to start by talking some Suns Pelicans. Obviously that series looks like it's going to be a lot more of a war than we expected obviously fueled by injuries. We'll talk a little bit about the Warriors Nuggets game today and what we might or may not have learned there. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the Celtics Nets game yesterday, which I think was the top story of the weekend in a lot of different ways and easily the most interesting series because of the greatness we're seeing on one end and the combustion we're seeing on the other end. So we'll get into that a little bit. And then at the end, we're going to go rapid fire through all of the series. No Carson tonight. You guys are stuck with me, but he will be back tomorrow. Let's start with the Suns and the Pelicans. So I want to start with Brandon Brandon Ingram here. And we're not going to get too deep into his backstory because we did that the last time he played amazing in game two. But what I did want to touch on here is just how comfortable and successful he's been, how comfortable he looks and how dominant he's been as a first-time playoff player against an unbelievably good defensive team. The Phoenix Suns, as I've said all year, are a team without holes. Now, a hole has opened up there in the form of the Devin Booker injury, but not on the defensive end of the floor. And the Suns have always had a plethora of great wings to throw at you, various different types too. You've got your big bruising wing and Jay Crowder. And then you've got your longer, you know, more uh, athleticism based wing in Mikhail Bridges. And then they've got other guys that can throw at you like Torrey Craig and like uh, Cam Johnson and so on and so forth. But Brandon Ingram looks completely undeterred. And it's really impressive when you factor in the fact that he's the primary source of all of the Suns defensive game planning. When you factor in that around the league, we're seeing stars struggle, stars that have had a lot of postseason reps. DeMar DeRozan, once again, struggled today. You're seeing, you know, or, uh, you know, like DeMar DeRozan is a tough shot maker. And when they go in, like they did in game two, he looks great. But when they're missing, all of a sudden, their whole offense feels very disjointed. Brandon Ingram has a lot of DeMar DeRozan in his game, but for whatever reason, he is so much more comfortable, even though he's in a much more difficult environment. And to me, it's a great bellwether for the rest of this era for the New Orleans Pelicans. Because if, as you see around the league, Draymond Green, our colleague here at The Volume, touched, tweeted the other day, very uh, in, in a very inflammatory manner. He said that, I can't quote him word for word. He said something along the lines of not everybody's meant for the playoffs. And he's right because of the physicality of the way it's officiated of the game planning. There are a lot of guys around the league that capitalize on the relatively lackadaisical nature of regular season basketball. And then they get into a postseason setting and they struggle. And Brandon Ingram is showing us right before our eyes that he is made for this environment. And I think there's a couple of different reasons why. I talk a lot about versatility, especially when we talk about James Harden, right? And the ability to attack a defense in a bunch of different ways is the key to not becoming solvable in a postseason series. 
And that's what I love about Brandon Ingram's game. He's got an isolation game, like a triple threat face-up game. He can attack you with a live dribble. He's got all of the dribble combinations. He can do isolation moves from anywhere on the floor. He can attack you out of the low post, out of the high post. He can pass out of pick and roll. He can score out of pick and roll. He can pass out of isolation help. He can do just about everything that you need from an offensive fulcrum. And as a result, he has all these different angles that he can go to. This was his third straight efficient 30-point playoff game. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that from Brandon Ingram as the years go by. And it's a very, very exciting prospect for Pelicans fans. Obviously, there are a bunch of other things they've got to round out on that front. I don't think the Pelicans are good. I still would lean Phoenix to win this series in six or seven games, obviously in at least six games. But even if they win, they're not a team that I have any sort of grand expectations for this season. But it's a very bright future. And seeing if you're a fan of any young star in the league, you're always looking, what are they going to look like in a playoff series? And Brandon Ingram looks great. You're looking at John Morant, for instance, and he's struggling a little bit, particularly on the defensive end of the floor. You're seeing John Morant get utterly attacked intentionally almost every time by Minnesota. That's a concern. That's something that, and we'll talk about that at a later point this week, but that's an example of, of, a, of a glaring flaw that if you're a Memphis fan, you kind of have to bake into everything that you plan and as, as a fan of the Grizzlies. Is John Morant looks like he's going to be attacked often on the defensive end of the floor in the playoffs. Same thing's happening to Trey Young right now. Brandon Ingram looks like a bona fide two-way star that looks comfortable and successful in the playoffs. Great sign for the Pelicans. I thought an interesting element of this particular game was the job that Herb Jones did on CP3. Obviously, you saw them jawing at each other a lot you know, CP3, this is the the theme of this series now. You know, I talked a lot about how Devin Booker and Chris Paul kind of together amount to what a superstar brings to the table. You have Chris Paul's playmaking. So if you're playing an overly aggressive defense, he's kind of the perfect guy to put the ball in his hands because he's going to be able to consistently make you pay. We're going to talk about this a lot later tonight with the Celtics. Like, in the in the nets there's only like four guys in the entire league that can consistently make guys pay out of these overly aggressive defenses and chris paul's one of them so having that guy huge asset then we look at devin booker and he gives you that same extreme high level three level scoring that you're seeing from like brandon ingram for instance and the two of those guys together Chris Paul and Devin Booker bring to the table what you would expect to get from a bona fide top 10 player in the NBA. But then one of them goes down. Now with Devin Booker out, that scoring option is not there. And you saw the Suns throw a ton, or excuse me, the Pelicans throw a ton of length at Chris Paul at this point because of Chris Paul's slowly waning speed as he gets older. A guy like Herb Jones can cover enough ground to kind of win some of that chess match stuff with Chris Paul. He struggled a lot tonight as a scorer after being a dominant scorer in game three. That's the way that the dynamic of a series can change when you pull out an important cog like that. And it's an interesting dynamic the rest of the series because coming into the series, who was the best player in the entire series? Devin Booker. And this would be one of the few matchups where the Suns would have the best player in the series. Moving on, Let's say they face Dallas in the next round. Like, Luka's the best player in that series, right? So, like, they're, and moving forward, that's going to be a perpetual case for the Suns. This was the one series where they had that advantage. Devin Booker is better than Brandon Ingram. Well, 
that was already kind of close with how well Brandon Ingram's playing. And now with Devin Booker out, the Pelicans have the best player in the series. That's a huge swing factor here. Still up in the air. This series is very close. I would not be surprised if the Pelicans won, but this, I would be picking the Suns at this point. But it's a lot closer than it looks, and that's the way things can change based on an injury in the postseason. One other quick note, um, or two other quick notes. Jonas Valanciunas, I've been very critical of him in this series. Coming into tonight through three games, the uh, Pelicans had a 120 defensive rating with him on the floor and were being outscored by eight points per 100 possessions. And then when they had Nance on the floor without Jonas, they had a 115 defensive rating, so five points better. And they were plus 3.3 net. I've always liked the way this team plays better with Larry Nance. You guys know how I am with traditional bigs. You guys know how I am with five-out basketball and really spreading the floor, prioritizing foot speed and the ability to dribble and shoot the basketball. I'm always driven towards Larry Nance. Well, tonight, I got to hand it to Jonas Valanciunas. He was a dominant offensive player. It's the one thing you have to do to make up for a massive shortcoming is to have one elite skill that you bring to the table that makes it a net positive trade-off. And if Jonas is going to be that good offensively, that's a huge asset. I talked a lot after the Booker injury with our guy Carson about how important it was going to be for guys like Mikhail Bridges and guys like DeAndre Ayton and guys like Cam Johnson to have a ton of points to fulfill some of the missing scoring from Devin Booker, because all three of those guys have more elements to their offensive scoring game than, than we've seen in the last couple of years as a result of their roles on this particular team. Well, in game three, when the Suns got the big win, Bridges and Ayton went for 45 and 19. Tonight, they went for 31 and 14. That's just not enough production. So in order for the Suns to come out with the win, which I believe they will, they just need to be better in the role players, especially scoring the basketball. My guess is that this ends up going seven and this, each team wins their home games and then the Suns end up advancing to the next round. Let's move on to the Warriors and the Nuggets. This was a game that to me, I've seen dozens and dozens of times over the course of the NBA playoffs. A team, you know, usually when they're down 3-0, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to be thinking about Cancun, for lack of a better term, and be willing to wave the white flag just because it's not worth it, or a team will show fight. And usually when they show fight in that down 3-0 situation, they win. And the reason why is because it's, in terms of human nature, there is no game in a playoff series that a favorite's going to bring less effort than in an up 3-0 game on the road with a chance to close out a team. That That is just, again, you can't fight that. That's just human nature. And I thought the Golden State guards, even though I've been very complimentary of them, of their defense, Stephen Clay in particular, they're great defensive players over the course of their careers because of their commitment. Not great. Clay has been great. Steph's been good. But those two guys tonight in conjunction with Jordan Poole, I thought they got bullied a bit. By the, by the Denver guards. I thought they didn't move as, their feet as well as they needed to. And I thought that was a big part in Monte Morris going off and in Bones Highland going off. And that kind of changed the dynamic of the game. But this is the way I look at it. If you're a Golden State fan and you're looking for a silver lining, Golden State more, made more field goals. They had more rebounds. They had more points in the paint. They had fewer turnovers. So they played a pretty damn good game. With Draymond Green on the floor, they were plus 18. And they blew it in the handful of minutes that Draymond was off the floor, which is kind of the downside of this matchup. We talk a lot about Golden State's lack of interior presence. And you've seen a little bit of that 
over the course of the last two games with Draymond starting to give a little bit of ground to Jokic. Defended him extraordinarily well in the first two games. It defended him well in crunch time of game three, but for the rest of game three and for parts of game four, he's starting to wear down in some of that physicality matchup against Jokic. And that's that's the fear if you're a Warriors fan, is what happens if you run into a player like Aiton has been pretty good in the last two games. It's an it's interesting to see how DeAndre Aiton would hold up in seven games against Draymond. If Embiid and the Sixers come out of the Eastern Conference, that could get interesting. But to me, if you're plus 18 with Draymond, you're in great shape. I expect the Warriors to win big in game five. They'll get, they'll get another big fat check for having another home game at Chase Center. All is well in Warriors land. I'm not particularly concerned. There were two parts of this game, though, that I wanted to touch on before we move on. One was the way that Steph was attacking, attacking Nikola Jokic late. And again, it's not, it's not a criticism of Jokic in the sense that I'm calling him a bad basketball player. But when people start putting a very specific standard on these guys, we have to hold them to that standard. There are a lot of guys in Denver and in the analytics community that have been pushing heavily that Nikola Jokic is the best player in the league. I've always thought of him as like either in the top tier as the guy who's clearly at the bottom of the top tier or the top guy of the second tier, give or take, depending on which day. You guys know me, I'm pretty open-minded. But I, the reason why I'm not, I, my general ideology is not to race to put people at the top, but the reason why I haven't been so willing to give that kind of credit and respect to Jokic is because of his limitations on the defensive end of the floor in terms of his foot speed. And I didn't think, I thought it was really telling tonight that at the end of the game, or I should say today, at the end of the game, when it was time for Golden State to really lock in and try to steal that game, they were just running quick ball screens with Draymond to try to get Jokic onto, or to, uh, to uh, they were just trying to get Jokic onto to Steph on the left wing by himself. And when I say tr the only metaphor I could possibly use to describe how easily Steph Curry was just dribbling right around Jokic. I would say that he was a traffic cone. Just the first time he literally just dribbled right around him. And then the second time, all he had to do was kind of like hesitate and look up at the rim for a second. And he went right down the lane and got an and one. That's a concern because that type of matchup exists all around the league. Even if it's not Steph, the quick guard that's going to pull Jokic out to the perimeter in a five-out system, that, that kind of thing is going to continue to happen to Jokic throughout his career. And all I did, so today I tweeted out a link, and I said, this is why I, I can't rightfully call Jokic the best player in the game when literally Golden State is attacking him and getting straight-line drives to the basket every single possession at the end of the game to the point where Denver literally had to remove him from the lineup. Mike Malone removed him from the lineup on the biggest defensive possession of the season. And a lot of people were like, well, Steph does that to every big. That's the point. That's part of why I always say that about bigs. People said, Jokic would do that to Steph on the other end. You're right. But Steph is, at his position, an above-average defender. And in a five-out scheme, what matters more is your ability to dribble contain than your size at the rim. It's a far more valuable skill. The size at the rim becomes more valuable in a drop coverage. But you can't run drop coverage against a team that's going to spread you out like that. That's the conundrum here. And to the point, 
Everyone was like, oh, well, Steph's not a, a fantastic defensive player, too. That was the big reason why, even though I loved Steph and everything that he brought to the table, that was one of the reasons why I had LeBron ahead of him, was his ability to rely on physicality on the offensive end and his ability to impact games defensively. Steph, for all of his effort, is an above-average defensive player, but he's not a great defensive player. That was the difference. But I, again, I just thought it was jarring to watch Jokic at the end of the game getting picked on and not just picked on like, you know, we're, this is just the best matchup for us to go at. So let's try it. No, no, no. When they got him on the wing, it was a straight line drive and there was nothing Denver could do to recover out of it. It's a major concern. Not doesn't mean Jokic sucks. Doesn't mean Jokic isn't an all-star. Doesn't mean he doesn't deserve to win MVP or any of those things. All it means is that's why he's closer to the sixth or seventh best player in the league than the first best player in the league. That's just my opinion. If you guys disagree, that's fine. It's just the way I see the game. I don't like the idea that your super duper star can be targeted that easily. Now, <clears throat> the last thing I wanted to hit on this particular game was the final play. Now, everyone loves to bag on their coach. Trust me, all of you guys who have been fans of a team for a long time, I dealt with it with Laker fans this year with Frank Vogel, although I thought they were had a little bit more of a leg to stand on because Frank did have a particularly rough season. But Steve Kerr's a, a, a very smart coach, in my opinion. He doesn't do everything that I agree with, but one of the consistent things that Warriors fans dislike about Steve Kerr is their willingness, is his willingness to use Kerr, Curry as a decoy rather than using him as the primary option. And on the last play of the game, or the, the pivotal play of the game, when they needed a basket, they did use Steph as a decoy, and they tried to get a seal under the basket for Andrew Wiggins, and Austin Rivers blew it up. Now, before we break down the play, Austin Rivers had a really interesting quote after the game. I don't want to play that for you guys. Here it is. No, uh, but we had an idea. When I saw Wiggins set in that screen, I knew exactly where he was going. I've seen them run that play a couple times. Uh, they've actually gotten us on that one time earlier in the season. So um, as soon as I saw him do that, I knew they were going to try to throw it to him. And then when I turned and faced him and I saw him looking that way, um, I knew I could get that steal. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of communication, though, tonight. The guys are telling me, you know, what to do. It allows me to, to, to do what I do best out there, and that's defend. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a Chill Mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on Chill Mattresses and get two free pillows iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Um, so. I love when we hear that kind of stuff from... Uh, from players immediately after the game. One of my favorite things about having Draymond Green at the volume is his reactions within a playoff series from a player on the teams in a podcast format like this is turning into some of the best content that you can find in sports. If you guys haven't heard it, you always got to check out Draymond Green after his games in the volume podcast feeds. Now, with Austin Rivers, what he brought up, I think, is a really interesting point here. Because when I saw that play, you know what I thought? I thought Otto Porter Jr. messed up because Andrew Wiggins wasn't open and he threw the pass. Now, there's a couple of interesting things surrounding that. First of all, what Austin Rivers just said is precisely why sets become less valuable in a postseason setting than they are in the regular season. Austin's seen that play before. And one of the reasons why Steve Kerr called that play is because he's expecting a switch. And he knew that the smaller defender was guarding Steph. He knew that if he set a solid screen, he'd get a switch. And there was even a possibility that multiple defenders would run with Steph. And he thought he'd be able to get a lob over the top to Andrew Wiggins. But that wasn't the only area of the play. If Wiggins had the deep seal on Austin Rivers and the pass was available, you throw the pass and you get the layup. But... Steph came off of that screen and was flying out to the corner and he had an advantage and I think he would have been open in the corner. Otto Porter Jr.'s job is if the read is not there, don't throw it and hit Steph in the corner. So I see why it's easy for, I see why it's easy for Warriors fans to be like, here goes Steve Kerr again. He drew up a play for Andrew Wiggins. No, he drew up a play that had multiple reads, one of which was hit Andrew Wiggins if he has an advantage because they're overplaying Steph and he gets a small guy pinned on him. That read wasn't open. There was another part of the play, Steph coming out to the corner. That was the guy Otto Porter Jr. was supposed to hit. And again, if, and all the Warriors fans are like, why didn't they just throw it into Steph Curry and let him go to work? Here's something else that might have happened. Steph Curry might have ran out to half court and grabbed the ball. And he would have either been doubled at half court 
Or if he dribbled up the floor, as soon as he got to an area of score, they would have doubled him. Or if he called for a ball screen, they would have doubled him. And the ball would have ended up in someone else's hands. And if that person, that person then suddenly becomes in the exact same position Otto Porter Jr. was in. If he makes the right read out of a four on three, everything is great. If he makes the bad uh, read out of the the four on three, the play falls apart. The play call wasn't the issue. Steve Kerr wasn't the issue. Otto Porter Jr. just made a bad read. And then just like Austin Rivers said, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, these guys scout a lot. If you run a set once and it works on them, they remember it. And if it would have worked in this particular game, never would have worked again in the series because they would have snuffed it out for the next time. These, these, the, the idea that like you can X's and O's your way to victory, there's a little bit of truth to that. But at the end of the day, it's about the players. They have to make the reads. They have to play basketball. That's why the Lakers with one of the most, you know, dumbed down offensive systems in, in the entire league won the title in 2020. Because they had better players. And their players were able to execute offensively by just using their advantages and making reads. So again, I'm picking the Warriors to win big in Game 5. Don't care about Steve Kerr calling that play. I had it on Otto Porter Jr. And yeah, I'm concerned about Nikola Jokic's ability to play defense on the perimeter and how that changes his ceiling You know, as a championship-level player. Before we move on, I wanted you guys to check out this promo for more shows on the volume. Hi, it's Colin Coward. I started the volume to bring you some of the most authentic voices in sports. While you're here, make sure you hit subscribe. Thanks. Let's move on to the Nets falling down three games to zero to the Celtics last night. Like I said in the video that I released right after the game, I wasn't shocked because I saw something in game two that had that forced me to change my outlook on a lot of different things in this playoff run. The night before, Devin Booker had strained his hamstring. And then in that particular game, I saw the Celtics in the second half hit a level of defense that I've never actually seen before in my time watching the game of basketball. There was a complete inability of the Nets to generate even remotely decent quality shots. Even when KD and Kyrie were getting to their spots, Boston was doing such an incredible job of crowding them that you could tell they weren't comfortable. And it's been one of the most interesting parts of this particular series. Boston is showing flashes of a level of defense that I haven't seen in my time watching basketball over the course of the last decade and a half. There are a couple of teams that have come close. I'm talking like the 2019 Raptors or like the 2020 Lakers. There are examples of really, really good defenses over the course of the last few years, but each of them had weaknesses in one way or another. The Lakers were not good at defending on the perimeter at the point of attack. They actually gave up a lot of straight line drives. They were just great at rotating out of it. The Toronto Raptors had some size and quickness issues. They played Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry in large bursts together, or they'd play Mark Gasol, a guy who was good in drop coverage and good at protecting the rim, but not very mobile, not good at covering ground. So when you got him in space, he had some issues and there were cases to be made that the Raptors were better with Serge Ibaka at the center position. This Celtics defense is completely and utterly devoid of weaknesses. And what's crazy is they bring in pieces off the bench 
that even slide well into that same scheme and that same quality of defense that you get out of the core five guys. And it's been really interesting because Katie and Kyrie, you know, there's a lot of people that are focused on them in particular in how this series has gone. And I get it. That's kind of the way that basketball is discussed. Everyone's especially on Twitter, it's kind of like everyone's on a side. Are you on the pro-KD side or the anti-KD side? Are you on the pro-Kyrie side and the anti-Kyrie side? But it's interesting because to me, this has been so much more about great Celtics defense than it has been about bad Nets offense. And I think we need to remember to give that credit to Boston because it's very, very important as we look forward to these next few series. One of the most interesting dynamics of this particular series is even though Boston is throwing the kitchen sink at trying to stop Kevin Durant and Kyrie, we've, we've broken it down in detail on the show. Multiple defenders every time there's a dribble drive. The only time they're really operating in single coverage is when they're 25 feet from the basket. Anytime there's any action, they're grabbing and they're holding. They're erring on the side of sending two, double, uh, two guys towards them. They're facing incredibly aggressive defensive coverages, but Boston is doing such an incredible job rotating out of it on the back end. I've talked a lot this year about how bad the Bucks defense is because of the fact that they pack the paint and they give up wide open threes on the back end. The Bucks during the regular season gave up more than 20 wide open threes per game on the back end of their defense. Well, in this playoff run through three games, they're giving up 20 <laughs> wide open threes on the back end. So that's very that's that's an example of the way that they play defense. This Boston team so far in this series with Brooklyn is only giving up 9.3 wide open threes against Brooklyn, less than half as many as Milwaukee is giving up and the fewest out of any of the teams in this entire playoff run. So, and I would argue that Katie and Kyrie are being pretty willing passers. We're going to talk a little bit more about them as playmakers as we get further into this, but it's not for KD and Kyrie jacking up shots. In the last two games combined, KD and Kyrie combined have only taken 58 shots, which means they're averaging between each of them are averaging less than 15 shots per game. That's they, they are not out there gunning. The Boston defense is getting the ball out of their hands, and Boston has good, or Brooklyn has good offensive players, guys like Seth Curry, guys like Patty Mills, guys like Andre Drummond, who's a pretty skilled center, right? You're, there are good offensive players on the floor for Brooklyn, working in a lot of four-on-three scenarios, and they're not getting anything on the back end. And that's why I keep saying, like, what caused me to have to change my outlook on this entire playoff run, part of it was the Suns, Devin Booker's hamstring is pulled. That's a significant change in the dynamic of the Western Conference playoffs. We've talked about that in detail. But in addition to that, I have seen something from Boston that I haven't seen from certainly any other team in this Eastern Conference playoff field. But I would argue that I haven't seen this from any team in recent NBA history. They are touching a level of defense that we are that we are not accustomed to seeing. And we have to adjust our expectations moving forward because of that. Jason Tatum blocked Kevin Durant again on a pull-up jump shot yesterday. It originally got called a foul, but on the replay, I thought it was clean. I thought he got the ball first. And we just don't see that very often. A huge part of that is because of how dominant Boston's team defense is, Tatum is given the leeway to crowd 
Kevin Durant more. And because he's crowding Kevin Durant more, Kevin Durant is playing with the body underneath him more than he's used to. And Jason Tatum has the length to get to the top of KD's shot. It is this unbelievable team, you know, organism that Boston has working on defense. And it's flummoxed one of the best offenses in the league this year. So in second halves this season, think third and fourth quarter, when KD and Kyrie are on the floor together, in the regular season, those guys averaged 124.8 points per 100 possessions. In the second halves against Boston in this series, they're only scoring 102.6. So in addition to everything that they're doing, they're starting to wear them down physically and cause problems as the series and as the games are progressing. If you guys remember back in March when Boston really was first starting to catch their stride, we did a bunch of stuff on them on our show. And I had some concerns at the time Tatum and Brown weren't shooting particularly well. Obviously, you were worried about Boston potentially as a half-court offense. But there were a couple of very specific things that I pointed to. And it was after Boston went into Brooklyn and beat the Nets in a very, very exciting game. And in that game, I couldn't help but notice that Tatum kept working down and getting Seth Curry on switches. And when he was getting Seth Curry on those switches, he was getting great looks and scoring. And then Brooklyn had to start doubling, and then Boston was getting wide-open shots out of it. Meanwhile, down on the other end of the floor, Boston was running a lineup of Al Horford and Robert Williams with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart. And there were a handful of possessions where KD scored, particularly in switches against Al Horford, tough mid-range pull-up jump shots, but he wasn't getting good shots. And it was like, here I'm attacking Jason Tatum on a very highly contested pull-up three. Here's Robert Williams coming up on a switch and contesting KD on a three that he nearly blocks. You were seeing KD was trying to pick from a bunch of really difficult defensive matchups, and Jason Tatum was picking from significantly easier defensive matchups. And after that game, I did a video breakdown on this very specific thing, and I said that the defense for Boston was able to buy Jason Tatum a margin for error that would allow him to potentially outplay Kevin Durant, and he has in this series. And it, to his credit, because I didn't see it coming, I thought KD would be the swing factor in this series, and he hasn't played well. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But, so let's, let's look at this playmaking thing, because the most, there's been a lot of grave dancing going on, which we'll talk about a little bit more in just a second. But a lot of people that are doing the grave dancing on KD and Kyrie and the Nets are pointing at them as playmakers. And I get that because that's not a strength of theirs. I've talked about this a lot on the show. It's a, it's a skill that I personally value a lot. That's why I've always been drawn to guys like LeBron and guys like Luka Doncic. I think it's an extremely valuable playoff skill. But people are forgetting just how rare it is. I, I think there's only four guys in the league that I would call like true dominant playmakers as perimeter initiators. Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, and Chris Paul. Those are the only four that consistently make reads that thrive in that environment going against defenses like Boston that are overly aggressive. And don't get me wrong, I've watched every one of these games twice in this series, and there have been a lot of missed reads. There have been opportunities where KD and Kyrie have missed open guys. But the same could be said for, like I said, every other player in the league, with exception of that select 
four. Now, that's what makes them so great is they never miss those reads. Guys like Luka, guys like LeBron, Jokic, and CB3, they are obsessive, and they are programmed in a way that they never miss those reads. And that's what makes it very difficult to play very aggressive defense against them. But the flip side of that is none of those guys are as good in isolation scoring as KD and Kyrie are. It's just a different archetype of player. You're giving some and you're getting some. Obviously, if I swap LeBron James into the series, Boston's probably not as aggressive. And LeBron's going to face a lot more single coverage because Boston's going to be scared to double a passer as great as LeBron. But the flip side of that is LeBron in single coverage attacking guys like Tatum and Brown and Al Horford all night long. He might not have as much success there as a guy like KD could, at least at this point in his career. Prime LeBron, that's a different story. But my point is, is like, if you're asking KD and Kyrie to consistently make high-level reads as passers against an overly aggressive defense, that's an unrealistic expectation. They, that's not their strength. And if you were, if they were capable of the, that very specific skill, they probably wouldn't be as good in other areas of the game. From what I can tell in this series, KD is being a willing passer. He's not forcing shots. I talked about this earlier. KD and Kyrie have combined to attempt only 58 shots in the last two games. There are some forces in there. There are some possessions, particularly Kyrie. Kyrie's been a lot more recklessly aggressive than KD has. I would argue KD is actually kind of overpassed. In game three in particular, you can tell all of this super aggressive defense is starting to get into his head a little bit because there are plays where he's the second defender is coming, but he's not even there yet. And KD's already panicked getting rid of the ball. So KD hasn't been perfect here. I want to talk a little bit more about how I feel about how KD's played in this series here in just a minute. But the point is, is that KD and Kyrie are doing the best that they can within their individual skill sets, at least to try to make Boston pay for their over-aggressiveness. It's just they're not the type of players that are built to thrive against that specific type of defense. Which brings me to Giannis, because Milwaukee took a, uh, uh, a, a 3-1 lead yesterday and uh and with boston being up 3-0 that's probably what we're headed towards we're probably headed towards milwaukee versus boston and the truth of the matter is Giannis is also not a fantastic playmaker got into an argument with some bucks fans today is he better than kd they both average right around six assists per game it kind of depends on who you ask i think kd is a better passer than Giannis, but it's not some big difference right both of them are just your typical guys that are capable of making reads on occasion, but they're not dominant playmakers. Giannis is going to have very similar problems. Now, there are differences. Giannis is going to be able to thrive in the physicality. If Boston tries to hold him and grab him off the ball, he's going to win that type of matchup. There are going to be a lot of like dunks and offensive rebound putbacks and things like that from Giannis that are his unbeatable high-level skill that he brings to the table that Boston will not be able to match up with. But the flip side of that is he doesn't have any of the pull-up jump shooting game that guys like Kyrie and KD have. Now, Kyrie and KD have been atrocious as pull-up jump shooters in this series, which is a credit to Boston's defense. But my point is, is that Giannis is going to be in some similar predicaments. He's also going to get doubled on the catch a lot. They're going to test his handle. They're going to see if he can really dribble the basketball as well as, as, as he thinks he can. They're going to see, they're going to test his ability to make reads. They're going to send multiple bodies to him, and he's going to have to make the same reads that KD and Kyrie have been asked to make 
and I don't know if he's going to be able to make them. Giannis fans seem supremely confident, and I, and this is your big opportunity. Chris Middleton's out. You're not going to have a high-level, three-level scorer that you can throw the ball to as like an outlet or a release valve for you in these settings. A lot is going to be on Giannis as a half-court creator in this series. My prediction is that he will also struggle, just like KD did, and my prediction is Milwaukee will lose. If he goes in there and he dominates that series, that's when I have to have a wake-up call about just how good Giannis is. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think the other outcome is far more likely. Now, with Brooklyn, this is where we're going to get to the grave dancing here because it's been an absolute party over the course of the last day and a half with everybody and their brother talking about how bad this Brooklyn experience has been. And it has for a lot of reasons. Should Bro- should KD have partnered with Kyrie, a very, very uh, finicky person who's not very reliable and isn't exactly uh, a guy that you can count on in a lot of different ways? Yeah, I disagree with that strategy. Was Steve Nash the right coach for the job? You know, maybe not. Was it worth it to sell a bu- uh, to, to, to go after James Harden, knowing everything that was wrong with him? Yeah, probably not. But they did fine in the trade on the back end, right? There are some moves there that I disagree with. Moves on the periphery, going after really old guys like LaMarcus Aldridge and Paul Millsap and Blake Griffin. Yeah, those are moves that I disagree with. Uh, but at the same time, let's be honest about what, what they have going forward. They've got Ben Simmons coming back. I'm not surprised that he's not going to play in game four. Just doesn't make sense to risk his back under the circumstances, right? I've got Joe Harris coming back. Six foot five mobile shooter who is an okay defensive player, significantly improved offensive player over a bunch of the options that they've had to play in this series. And then Ben Simmons gives you some of that physical presence that they were lacking in this series. So that's a massive influx of talent coming into this next season. And again, Kyrie and KD are aging, but they're not old yet so you can probably expect that KD and Kyrie are going to be mostly KD and Kyrie next year not to mention if there's no vaccine mandate as long as KD doesn't or excuse me as long as Kyrie doesn't just disappear on uh, without telling everybody for a month chances are they won't be a seven seed chances are they'll be a higher seed they'll have more talent is Brooklyn going to win the title next year I don't I don't know they're not going to be favored so it's not like a, a question of of like oh just wait for Brooklyn next year they're going to run everybody over all I'm saying is Don't dance on their grave just yet. They have moves to make. They have talent coming into the fold. They're going to be good. A lot of people did this with the 2019 Lakers. Oh, LeBron's bringing wine to the bench. Oh, oh, LeBron's getting blocked on game winners. LeBron looks washed. And then they were holding the trophy the next year because they made some savvy moves in the offseason, brought in a, a, a superstar player in Anthony Davis, and a lot of things changed. So don't write off Brooklyn just yet. So let's move on to KD. I have always hated this about the way that we talk about NBA players, and it's a very Twitter type, it's a very Twitter fueled dynamic with a lot, a lot less focus on what's actually happening on the court and a lot more opportunistic slander. And we had today, after uh, uh, we had today on TNT, Charles Barkley give a perfect example of what I'm talking about with his comments on KD. I want to show you guys this clip first, and then I will respond to it. Let me tell you something. I don't want to badmouth the dude, but I'm. T- I, I see you guys always talk about that championship stuff. I try to tell y'all, all these bus riders, they don't mean nothing to me. If you ain't driving the bus, don't walk around and talk about you a champion. If you riding the bus, I don't want to hear it. Come on, Shaq, tell them. All these guys walk around with these championship rings. Hey, y'all bus riders. Well, let That's me tell two you something. In a row, Chuck. When you bust, when you the bus driver. 
and you got all that pressure where you have to play well or you're going to get to blame, that's a different animal. That literally sounds like a tweet from a faceless account underneath like something random that KD would tweet in the middle of the summer. That's the kind of discourse that we're getting surrounding this. And it's disappointing to me on a bunch of different levels. First of all, throw some credit to Boston. How many times, like KD is as rounded and confident and experienced a superstar as you have in this league. And they have literally cut him off at the knees in this series. Give some credit to Boston. That's, that's a huge part of this. The second part of it is the obsession to make this about head-to-head matchups instead of team basketball. I told you guys before this postseason even started, I said, I'm not looking forward to the Celtics potentially beating the Nets and everyone saying Tatum's better than KD now. And the reason why I said that is because I knew this would happen because this is how we respond to this sort of thing. I, I try to be consistent with this kind of stuff. In 2017 and 2018, I thought LeBron James was the best basketball player in the world by a comfortable margin. He had just firmly demonstrated it against Steph Curry in 2016. And then this is what happened. The 73-win Warriors that just went to seven games with LeBron requiring a game-winning pull-up jump shot from Kyrie Irving and a monster, amazing block from LeBron James to get the trophy after that game Uh, Kevin Durant signed with the Golden State Warriors. So everyone with a brain knew that they were going to probably win the next year. And guess what they did? They won 15 playoff games before they lost one. They had injuries during the season and still won 67 regular season games. They were an incredibly dominant team. And what was everyone saying after that series? Oh, KD outplayed LeBron. KD's better than LeBron. Get to 2018. Now Kyrie's out of the picture. So same talented Warriors team, one less Kyrie Irving. And the Cavs get swept and everyone's like, KD's better than LeBron. Look at him outplaying LeBron. Look at him hitting this massive dagger shot over LeBron in game three. And it was unfair then. And it's unfair now. Basketball is a team sport. I know it seems like fun and it's entertaining to 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 pretend as though it's so that it's just this this like little mano a mano boxing match, but that's not the way it works. That's incredibly lowbrow analysis, and so I'm going to call it out when I see it. I thought that was really lame from Charles Barkley. Now with KD, has he been great in this series? No, there KD deserves some criticism. He has not been impactful enough on the defensive end and as a rebounder. That could have been a swing factor in this series. I have to criticize him for that. Throughout his entire career, he's always put that uh, as less important than some of the scoring areas of his game. I believe had he embraced that throughout his career, we'd probably be having a different conversation about Kevin Durant potentially being the greatest basketball player ever right now. That's something I've consistently criticized him for. His inability to handle physicality has been a player uh, a problem in this series has not been a problem at almost any other point in his career. Not since like the Memphis Grizzlies in in 2013 or whatever, have we seen a team really disrupt KD with physicality. But in this series, it's been a problem. He's been worn down off the ball. When he gets to his shots, he's missing shots he normally makes. And I believe that's a huge part of that. He has struggled with Jason Tatum in isolation defense because of of the physicality and his ability to press up on KD and his inability to thrive in that physical environment. That's fair criticism. Also, 
he uh, has not made enough high-level reads. We talked about that in detail earlier in this segment. He needs to be able to make a defense pay for being that aggressive. That's all fair criticism. KD did not play good enough in this series. That is fair. But he could have played way better, and they still would have lost. That's how good this Boston team is. Kevin Durant could have exerted more in the physical areas of the game of defense, and they still would have lost. Kevin Durant could have made more of these pull-up jump shots, and they still would have lost. It just would have been in five or six games instead of in four. And so what I'm saying is, like, if you want to get on there and you want to show clips and talk about KD missing reads, I'm right there with you. That's fair criticism. Let's do it. But this lame 30,000 feet, his rings are frauds, he's not a real champion, he sucks at all this stuff, you know, that to me is just really, really lame analysis. And I, and I, I would hope that at some point we would be better than that. And most importantly, if I swapped LeBron and KD in this series and LeBron ran all of these possessions that KD is running, would it have looked different? Potentially, meaning like Boston probably doesn't help as much. Boston's probably less aggressive. Boston probably tries to turn LeBron into a scorer, but I still think Brooklyn loses. Why? Because Boston is one of the best defenses I've ever seen, and they're the better team in the series. So let's let's just, if you want to be critical of KD, that's fine. Let's just at least keep it, you know, fair, if that makes sense. Hi, it's Colin Coward. I started the volume to bring you some of the most authentic voices in sports. While you're here, make sure you hit subscribe. Thanks. All right, before we get out of here for the night, we're going to do a segment that we're calling Fast Break, where I just really quickly hit on the other series is going on around the league. I want to start with the Bucks. I thought it was really, really interesting in game three, the way they went with Bobby Portis in for Chris Middleton. That going with three bigs was kind of the textbook Mike Budenholzer, we're going to double down on protecting the paint. Now, for this particular matchup, it's genius because the Bulls don't know how to generate quality threes. I've talked about this a lot over the course of the last couple of months. The Bulls were dead last in the league in three-pointers attempted per game. And so are you shocked that they could only make 18 total threes in their two home games? I'm not shocked. That's kind of the, the, whole, the whole point of this matchup. Milwaukee's greatest defensive weakness also happens to be Chicago's greatest offensive weakness. So it's not surprising at all that they would struggle to capitalize on the Bucks going all in on size. The tricky part there is, I don't think that same strategy will work in later matchups, especially against the Celtics. Like you're seeing with the Nets, it's so important to have guys around Kyrie and KD that can score because of all the attention thrown that way. That is going to happen again in the next round. They're going to throw a ton of bodies at Giannis and a ton of bodies at Drew, and they're going to be asking other people to, to beat you, and I'm not sure that going with three bigs is the way to do that. But I did think it was a smart card to pull in this particular series, and here's the deal. Chris Middleton's out with a knee sprain. He says two weeks. We'll see. I would be shocked if he showed up before game four or game five of next round, but you needed to win this series. Chicago stole game two. It was very much still kind of up in doubt at that point. You had to do something. 
I thought it was a smart adjustment for this particular series. I'm just really curious to see, like we talked about earlier, how they deal with the Celtics. Moving on to the Heat. You know, I had a bunch of uh, Heat fans comment recently about how we haven't talked enough about the Heat. I get that. In my defense, this Atlanta Hawks team, in my opinion, is by far the most uninteresting team in this field. There are like 15 good teams and the Atlanta Hawks in here. Sorry if you're a Hawks fan listening. That's just the reality of this situation. Jim Jackson, who does an amazing job doing color commentary, he was uh, the color commentator for this particular game, and he made a comment. He said, this is like watching a professional team playing a college team. And uh, again, there's not that much of a gap in talent, but what he was trying to say, which is something that I agree with, they're not great at the details of a, being a professional basketball team. They don't have their rotations down sharply. They're not consistent in their effort on a possession-by-possession possession basis. They look really unorganized, particularly on the defensive end. How many times tonight did you see somebody for Miami break wide open? When the other series is around the league, you don't see as many wide-open players. The Hawks have only held Miami below 25 points in a quarter twice in this series. And they lost both of those quarters. So even when the Hawks have been able to lock in and get stops, the Heat have been better than them in those quarters. They were the sore thumb of this entire playoff field. And yes, they'll be going home in game five. Heat fans, we will be talking a lot more Miami Heat in the next round against the Sixers or the Raptors, depending on who wins that series, which takes us to the Raptors. So what did I tell you guys before the series was the most important part for Toronto to have a chance to win. I told you guys two things. I said, they have to get out and transition and they have to have multiple players play better than James Harden. And in this particular game, they forced 16 turnovers and had 22 points on those turnovers. They had 21 fast break points, which was more than twice as many as Philly had. And both Gary Trent Jr. and Pascal Siakam were better than James Harden. And what do you know? You get a win as a re result. Siakam was awesome. He had 34 eight and five in that game. The Embiid thumb injury is interesting. I have never uh, torn a ligament in, my, a ligament in my thumb, but I've sprained my thumb before. It's no fun. I had a shooting coach once uh, back when I was playing in Utah talk about how your thumb is one of the most important parts of your shot because that's how you avoid left-right misses. My, there was a coach I had in Utah. I was obsessed with watching YouTube videos and he'd watch these videos of Ray Allen and Ray Allen would always talk about spreading your hands wider, getting your hands wider around the basketball because that helps you get more control over the basketball. Having a sprained ligament in your thumb, I keep trying to imagine what it would be like to shoot with that, and that's complicated. And especially since Joel Embiid and his jump shooting has been kind of a weird, important weapon for the Sixers in this series. That's how they stole game three. Again, I am obviously picking the Sixers to win the series that they're, we've never seen a team come back from 3-0. But as a basketball fan, I've told you guys at length how they're the team that I want to lose because their foul grifting offends me as a basketball fan. If there was one team that you'd love to see lose 3-0, it'd be these guys. And this is how it is. You go into Philly and you win. Once you do that, you take them back to Toronto. It's going to be a madhouse. And all of a sudden, the pressure is on the Sixers. And you hope that that pressure ends up breaking down a lot of their players and ruining their confidence. That would be your hope. That's not going to happen, I don't think. But I would be lying if I told you I wasn't rooting for that. Last quick hitter of the night, this Ben Simmons story. 
there was this conflicting reporting. You had a report come out. Ben Simmons not going to play in game four. Then you had reports come out that the Nets were disappointed that he decided not to play. It's a herniated disc, guys. He didn't tweak his ankle. He's got a bulging disc in his back. There is absolutely no reason to bring him back to play in this game. Regardless of whether or not Ben Simmons is coming back next year, there's just no point. The Celtics are the better team. They're going to win the series. All that could stand to happen by bringing Ben Simmons back is maybe you steal a game or two if he's a massive impact player, but you're still going to lose the series. And Ben Simmons is back in his health in that area is more valuable at this point. I have no doubts that he would have played if they would have won game three. To me, that's a big non-story. All right, guys, that is all I have for tonight. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We will be back after the final game. Of the, actually, no, tomorrow we're going early. We're going right after Nets Celtics tomorrow. So be ready for that here on YouTube, like usual, right after the final buzzer of Celtics Nets. I will see you guys then. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.